Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast from the new online magazine at AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show, Peter Baker, Chief White House Correspondent for The New York Times, and Susan Glasser, Staff Writer for The New Yorker. Together, they're the authors of the new book, The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. Uh, Susan, Peter, welcome to Bookstack. Hey, thanks so much for having us. Oh, we're delighted to be with you. Thank you. So congratulations on the new book. I mean, for listeners who don't know, to paraphrase Henry Kissinger in the book, who the heck is James Baker? <laughs> well, something of a nemesis over time of Henry Kissinger, <laughs> actually. But, uh, you know, look, Jim Baker was really a legend of his time in the sense that there is no one who has assembled such a portfolio of uh, both political and policy positions at the highest levels of Washington, really stretching all the way from the end of Watergate to the end of the Cold War. And uh, to Peter and I, I think that made it a really, a, he was a unique subject who'd offered us a chance to write the story, not only of one particularly remarkable American life, but someone who told the story of Washington over a, a period of time that's markedly different than our, than our own. And so, uh, you know, Jim Baker, I think it was Tom Dodd, who uh, was Barack Obama's national security advisor, who, who told us that he thought Baker was the most important unelected official since the end of World War II. And, and he meant that, including Henry Kissinger, by the way. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinary when you look at the offices that he held. He was chief of staff and treasury secretary in the Reagan administration, then chief of staff and secretary of state in the Bush 41 administration. But one of the things that really comes across in this book, and it's, it's in the title, The Man Who Ran Washington, is the way in which he does politics. He's someone who gets stuff done um, and he does it in a particular kind of way. That nickname, uh, The Velvet Hammer. Tell us about his style of politics. Right, exactly. Well, it is a remarkable thing for a person who would run two campaigns, not one, but two campaigns against Reagan, to then be chosen by Reagan as his chief of staff. And I think it tells you a lot about Reagan, and it tells you a lot about Baker, right? That here, here was somebody who may not have been the visionary or the person who, uh, you know, articulated great themes the way Reagan did, but Reagan understood he needed somebody like a Baker in order to get that done. He had to have an engineer in order to translate the vision into a reality, whether it be legislation, executive action, or even just the mechanics of running a, a presidency and, and, and demonstrating leadership in the world. And Baker was the guy who could do that. He figured out how the gears of Washington worked, whether it would be Treasury Secretary, Secretary of State, any of these jobs, he took the same approach, which is to how to how to get things done. And he didn't stand on ceremony or ideology. Obviously, he was a conservative, is a conservative, but he wouldn't let that stand in the way of getting a deal done. And as he always liked to say, Reagan would tell him, that he himself was more of a pragmatist than people understood, that he would rather get 80% of what he wanted done than take his flag flying it, running over the cliff, trying to get everything he couldn't get. Yeah, I love that uh, phrase that he uses at, at one stage in the book that, uh, you know, if your opponent is behind the eight ball, you have to give them a, a way to get out because at some point you're the one who's going to be behind the eight ball and you're the one who's going to need the charity. Well, and that speaks, of course, to Washington the way that it had been 
uh, for a long time and how the game was played. And it uh, certainly, you know, these days we live in a much more zero sum kind of politics, it seems to me, uh, that really uh, you could argue that in, in part because of some of the developments of the Republican Party in this era when Jim Baker was at the Heights, uh, the um, uh, uh, the rise of sort of Newt Gingrich style, not only smash mouth politics, but uh, scorched earth politics where uh, I win, you lose was the way that it has evolved to the point where we have such extreme dysfunction. Congress can't even do basic functions anymore, like pass appropriations bills. But in Baker's era, it was almost the exact opposite, right? You know, the, the live to fight another day, the sense that you understand that today's opponent may be tomorrow's ally in legislation. And understanding the reality of divided government was completely different at that time. We have divided government now, right? We have a Democratic House of Representatives, a Republican Senate, Republican president. We're about to have a different form probably of divided government after January 20th. And yet uh, somehow the incentive structure in Washington has changed. In Baker's era, that meant the entire length of two Reagan terms and one term for George H.W. Bush, the House of Representatives was controlled by Democrats and the way to success ran through working with them. And I think he took a similar philosophy when he became Secretary of State. Uh, the road to success came through working with Gorbachev and the Soviets to find uh, uh, new solutions for a new moment in time. And as you say, there doesn't seem to be that sense of ideological purity. It's very different to politics today. I mean, some of the examples that uh, you, of the stories that you tell in the book, for example, the negotiations on the uh, 1986 tax reform really are a thing to behold, not just because of his skill, but just because it seems such a world away from our own politics. Well, it does, right? This is an era when you see a COVID relief bill, which both sides agree is needed, sit there undone since April, right? Hundreds of thousands of people are losing their jobs and in need of help from the government. Both Republicans and Democrats agree that they should help them, but they can't get their act together enough to simply come up with a deal between April and here we are now heading into December. And I can't imagine a Jim Baker allowing that to happen. You're right, he worked with the Democrats to rewrite the entire tax code in 1986. A model for how that could be done hasn't been done since in that kind of a way. Same with Social Security, by the way, in 1983. Same with you know settling, settling the Contra War, which had been such a divisive force in Washington in 1989. He just, he, he found a way to say, you know, he was a ruthless knife fighter to partisan uh, contest during the election contest. But when it was over, he did sit down with Democrats and figure out the best way to get things done was to give them something to get what he wanted. Yeah, so one of the things that I really love about this book is that clearly you admire the way in which he's able to get things done, but you don't romanticize him. You show that he, I mean, he really could be brutal in his politics. He has that Southern charm, but there's, I think it's Robert Zolik who points out that you don't go to James Baker if you want emotional support. If you want that, you get a dog. <laughs> well, that's right. In fact, Zelik, uh, who went on to uh, become head of the World Bank, was a very close advisor throughout Baker's uh, time in senior roles in Washington. And yet he pointed out to us that he didn't think Baker knew his wife's name. They were never invited uh, for dinner uh, with the Bakers. He did not uh, uh, feel that he had a, a personal relationship, that Baker was a cold-eyed pragmatist, even in what 
others would perceive as his closest Washington relationships. And, you know, that had a cost on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, it made him a, a brutal realist, not only in seeing what policy deals could be made, but also what was required in politics. And the most obvious example of that, I guess, is the 1988 campaign when Baker is charged with running uh, the presidential campaign of his close friend, George H.W. Bush. Baker's been the Treasury Secretary for Reagan and uh, is now being pulled into the campaign. It's already the summer of 1988. Uh, Bush has won the nomination, but is down by 17 points to Michael Dukakis, the Democratic nominee, as of the convention when Baker comes into it. And, you know, Baker takes a very, very cold-eyed look at the situation. He understands that it, they're going to have to run a brutal negative campaign if they're to have any chance to win for Bush, that uh, there's not much they can do in terms of reshaping Bush's image after uh, all he's already been the vice president for eight years. Uh, he's very well known that the only way to do it is to rip down Bush. Uh, Bush's opponent, Dukakis, and they run this campaign that is to this day sort of almost a synonym, a byword for negative campaigning in the United States. This is uh, a campaign that featured the infamous Willie Horton ad. This is uh, uh, where they took essentially a mild-mannered Massachusetts technocrat, Michael Dukakis, and turned him into a flaming enemy of the United States, who hated the Pledge of Allegiance, who wanted to support flag burning, who uh, you know was dared to join the ACLU, uh, and of course supported and coddled criminals. And uh, I think that tells you a lot about Baker. And by the way, Bush's view of electoral politics, they did see this as something slightly unseemly, something that you had to do in order to achieve power. The difference to me from today is that they had a very different view of what to do with power once they got it. And that's where they acted much more responsibly and had a very different view than the governing principles of today. I think their politics, unfortunately, there's much more of a through line to uh, the world we're living in right now. Yeah, I mean, that that campaign is so bad that the, the campaign manager, Lee Atwater, on his deathbed, felt that he, he had to apologize to the Democratic candidate, Michael Dukakis, for the way in which he'd behaved. Well, that's exactly right. He said that uh, he, had, he had bowed and wanted to strip the bark off the little bastard. That was a quote, I think, from Lee Atwater. He was the first one who really pushed the Willie Horton thing. Even, you know, Baker allowed it, it certainly permitted it. But it was Atwater who eagerly, zealously pressed the case. And he said on his deathbed that he uh, it was mean-spirited and it made him look like a racist. And he wasn't a racist. And he realized he was playing with the fires of race in a way he shouldn't have done. And we asked Baker about that. Um, and, you know, it's one time I think he came close to sort of expressing some regret. He says, well, you know, the, the, the Willie Horton thing, you know, you could prob probably argue maybe should have uh, been done differently. But then he kind of then pivoted back and says, look, you know what? We had to win. We were 17 points behind. You have to do what you have to do in order to win. And that's what politics is about. We didn't do anything he said that he considered to be unethical or over the bounds. So, it's you know, it's one of these things where it's part of his story. And I think it's part of the story of his time. 
Yeah, it's one of the one of the real stories, obviously, in this book is that relationship with George H. W. Bush. I mean, his fortunes are very much tied to Bush. Oh, I did find it fascinating that I mean, George Bush really does not come out of this book well in terms of political skill or judgment. I mean, it's a real revisionist account that uh, you give here. I, I'm not sure that anyone could read this book and not think that Bush's reputation has been either uh, has been overhyped. Uh, I mean. Uh, Tell us about their relationship and how it worked and and what you think was at at the essence of of the thing they were trying to achieve. Well, I think, look, first of all, you know, Bush is primarily, I think, uh, well-regarded today when it comes to foreign policy. And obviously, that's the area in which he and Baker worked most closely during the course of the administration. I do think that Peter and I came away from this book feeling that... uh, you know, their stories were so intertwined that it's it's totally uh, a fair conclusion, a fair analysis to think that uh, neither one might have achieved the heights uh, that he ultimately did without the other. And in that sense, their stories are really uh, uh, interdependent. Certainly, obviously, Baker would not have been Secretary of State or anything really in Washington had it not been for George H.W. Bush. But I think uh, it's fair to argue that the reverse is also true, in particular because Baker played such a crucial role in uh, the machinations that ended up with Bush getting the vice presidential nod from Ronald Reagan, which obviously was the key to him ultimately becoming the president. And, uh, you know, so I think their stories are intertwined. Uh, They also were much closer personally than we were, perhaps we didn't know. That was a question that we had, I think, starting out the book, uh, the extent to which this was more than just a kind of social country club, have a drink on Saturday afternoon after playing a set or two of tennis, kind of a friendship. It turns out that was not the case. And uh, this was genuinely uh, a deep personal relationship that included Jim Baker actually uh, confiding in Bush and only Bush when his first wife, Mary Stewart, was uh, given a terminal diagnosis of cancer. There's this remarkable letter that Baker writes to Bush. Uh, uh, this is in 1969, in which he says, essentially, uh, George, I'm telling you this awful secret. Uh, I haven't been able to tell my mother, my boys, even my wife herself uh, about this terrible thing, but I'm confiding it in you. And imagine, you know, then projecting that through the decades uh, in terms of what that meant to have a president and a secretary of state who were so close. Yeah, and the, re- the relationship does seem to go kind of up and down at, at, at different times, in particular Barbara Bush, at, uh, George H.W. Bush's wife, is, is quite critical. And yet you have that very moving scene right at the end of uh, President Bush's life where Jim Baker is there, he's kind of holding Bush's hand, at one stage he's, he's even massaging his feet. So, I mean, I think that gives an indication of everything they'd been through, but also, as you say, of the the genuine closeness that was there. Well, I think that's right. Look, they both used the the phrase uh, brothers or siblings to describe their relationship. And in any sibling relationship, there are moments of tension. I mean, uh, they went into the family business together, right? And there are moments then when you're kind of scratchy. I think Baker at times uh, thought that uh, Bush wasn't as good a campaigner as he ought to be, and that uh, Baker himself, of course, you know, thinks, well, I could do this. And Bush resents Baker for for his prominence and his good reputation at you know, various points saying, well, if you're so smart, how come you're not president, right? And then he even picks Dan Quayle as vice president without even telling Baker, which was sort of an act of rebellion. But it, you're right, at the end of the day, 
that's what brothers and siblings sometimes do. They fight and they scratch, but they are in fact very close. And that scene you described where he's Baker's rubbing Bush's feet, even on his deathbed, I think is the true uh, picture of their relationship. Yeah, the question that you keep coming back to and runs as a theme throughout the book time and again uh, is whether Baker is anything more than a handler. President Bush talks about not having the vision thing, but you seem to imply that Baker worries that he doesn't have it either. Well, look, you know, I guess what he would say is I'm not going to get hung up on uh, the vision thing. And, you know, there are certainly ideological through lines uh, in his career. Uh, and, uh, but again, for him, I think the ideology was about doing things. And you can argue about whether that's a vision or not. Uh, what I would say, is having spent time with him on this biography in his uh, mid 80s, he's still very much with it. What I was struck by was was that there are sort of core beliefs that inform his view of the world now that clearly informed his view of the world uh, when he was actually running the world. And, you know, a kind of vision of American leadership that uh, embraces uh, diplomacy, alliances, uh, a sense that the U.S. is stronger when it works together with others uh, is absolutely at the core, certainly of Jim Baker's view of the world. He's also, by the way, a deep skeptic of uh, the use of American military force. And that's something that's very interesting because uh, of course the the first Bush is often associated with the Gulf War. That was much more an example of where uh, that President H.W. Bush was driving that decision. I would say that Baker on his own might not have come to the conclusion uh, that a full-scale invasion, ground invasion was required after Saddam's uh, uh, takeover of Kuwait, certainly Baker supported it once that was the decision. But to me, I do think that he has a particular vision uh, of an engaged uh, America active in the world, uh, but mostly driven by free trade uh, and alliances and partnerships. And, you know, again, you can argue about whether that's a vision or not. um, But right now in the Washington that Peter and I are sitting in, uh, uh, a reputation for extreme competence uh, and ability to meet challenges as they arose without particularly having a plan for them uh, would be something that you could imagine many Americans, <laughs> regardless of ideology, might welcome. And I mean, that's something that does seem characteristic of that period, even if you step back to the previous administration, the way that Ronald Reagan had the big picture, but George Shultz had that had that real attention uh, to detail. But Baker seems to somehow do both, that he's trying to think strategically, but he's also some who is on top of the detail too. Well, I think that's right. Look, you know, he is methodical in his preparation, right? That was the phrase, prior uh, prior preparation prevents poor performance. But he did, he came into revolutionary times, right? You know, it wasn't enough to be a mechanic uh, when the Cold War is, is ending. And so you basically have a person who may not have started the revolution, didn't, it didn't cause these great forces of history. He wasn't Reagan in that sense, um, but he figured out how to channel them, right? To, to, to derive them to, a, to, a, to a, an ending that worked well for the West as well as for uh, the East. And I think that's, you know, that's no small thing. That may not be visionary in the traditional sense, but it is big picture and strategic in its outcome. Yeah, I, I, I would just add to that, that I, I feel like 
The thing about Baker that strikes me as relevant to many different periods uh, uh, in Washington, not just his own, uh, is frankly, he's probably the best crisis manager uh, uh, I think we've seen in uh, certainly recent history in the U.S., right? Like this was a crisis literally a minute in in these formative years, 1989 to 1992, when he was the Secretary of State. Go back and look at the chronology of what's happening. Boom, the Berlin Wall is falling. Boom, there's a new government practically every day uh, in one of the countries of uh, the Warsaw Pact, Romania uh, revolution. Boom, you know, the Czech revolution. Poland is, uh, you know, completely being transformed. Uh, Inside the Soviet Union, there are revolutionary things almost every day happening at this period of time, uh, including counter-revolutionary things. And, uh, you know, there's no handbook for this. There's no plan. Uh, really struck that, you know, when he and Bush came in to uh, the the administration in January of 1989, one of the first things is he gets a memo from the experts at the State Department on the subject of German unification that concludes there's no possibility of it at all. Sorry, guys, it's a beautiful dream, ain't happening. Right. They did not have a plan. And yet he so masterfully was able to manage a never ending series of almost unpredictable crises that were occurring. I suppose his his critics would argue that when you look back to the end of the Second World War, when uh, there's a new world order, you get the UN, NATO, the Marshall Plan, you get these new departments of defense and the CIA, you get strategic plans like containment and NSC 68. And but there's nothing really comparable for Bush and Baker that their system, the system that they put in place doesn't even last a generation because that's where we are today. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think that the the beginning of the Iraq war in some ways is the opportunity to create this new world order, as Bush called it, right? Suddenly you had Jim Baker standing with Edward Chabernadze at the airport outside of Moscow, jointly condemning Iraq's invasion of Kuwait and drawing out new rules of the road, that that the world is no longer going to be a bipolar, you know, us versus them proxy war everywhere uh, around the globe. In fact, there are going to be standards and you cannot simply invade your neighbor. Now, they didn't then translate that into a lasting edifice, right, into a lasting structure the way, as you say, the UN and and NATO and all these other organizations that came about in that Atchison period. But they didn't have a second term either. And it's interesting, an interesting question would be, having gotten through the revolutionary period, would they have then built on that and created uh, an architecture for this new world order if they had another four years. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really fascinating point because, of course, it all unravels for him and for George Bush at the end, that election uh, of 1992. And it, I mean, it's fascinating in the book because really he wanted to remain a statesman, but his friend uh, needs him to go back to being a politician. It reminded me of that great of that great moment in The Godfather 3, which is made actually while he is uh, Secretary of State. Uh, when they say, you know, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. He he just can't escape it, can he? Well, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, there's right like in in journalism. You know, there was always a lesson that they would give to uh, you know newcomers, like don't get too good on the obits desk, or you'll get stuck there. Right? You know, <laughs> uh, Jim Baker was too good at politics ever to escape it. And uh, the reality was he longed to be a statesman. He longed to be a principal in Washington terms, uh, but. Uh, he understood perhaps all too painfully uh, that uh, electoral politics campaigning the grubby business 
of getting elected uh, was the only way through to power and that you had no choice to answer the call uh, once it did. But of course, his conduct of the 1992 campaign was probably his biggest rift with the Bush family in part because they felt he was never really in it. Uh, to win it, that he perhaps had concluded that it was hopeless. Uh, perhaps he just couldn't bear to leave the State Department behind him. But um, I think it's, it does tell you his attitude about politics, though, not as some noble profession, uh, but as, a, a, in fact, a dirty, grubby one uh, that gave you the chance to do things that were more noble. I mean, it's, he do, he does get a redemption of sorts when he's called in to help George W. Bush after the 2000 election. In fact, it's one of my favourite moments uh, in the whole book when he meets his opposite number for Gore, another former Secretary of State, Warren Christopher. I mean, it's, it's almost too brutal to retell, but I'm going to get you to do it anyway, because it's the classic Velvet Hammer moment. Well, it really is. Warren Christopher, of course, is a very decent upstanding, dignified gentleman and been Secretary of State under Clinton. And the idea was, here are these two great Secretaries of State, Warren Christopher and Jim Baker, would sit down and resolve this great mess in Florida over who had won the election. And Warren Christopher shows up like it was a Geneva negotiation with the Soviets. He had a plan A. If that was rejected, he had a plan B. And they had a plan C. And Baker shows up and he's all bon ami and happy to see you, Chris. How great to see you. But sorry, my guy won, and I'm here to preserve his victory. I'm not here to dance with you. I'm here not to negotiate with you. I'm here to preserve the victory that we won. And it's a reminder that he was the statesman, but he was also this partisan fighter. And he could be both, and he toggled back and forth between these two roles in a way that I don't think anybody else has in the modern era in quite the same way. And I and he just brutalizes Christopher in the sense that Christopher doesn't know what to do. And the meeting that was supposed to go for a couple hours ends up breaking up after just about 15 minutes because there really wasn't anything to say. Baker's there to win. He isn't there to talk. And it does, it shows that ultimately he's a political animal. And as you show at the end, he's also a party man that he voted for President Trump in 2016. I don't know how he voted, whether we know how he voted in the last election. But what what does he think of Donald Trump in the kind of the, the context of, of his own legacy? Well, that's what's so been remarkable and interesting for, for us working on this book with the sort of parallel conversation around the rise of Donald Trump and the hostile takeover by Trump of the Republican Party. Uh, on, on, on the one hand, Trump is anathema to Baker, uh, both in terms of his character and uh, his methods, his uh, and in terms of his ideology, right? You know, Baker still is an internationalist who believes in free trade and uh, uh, was completely and deeply offended by Trump on some level, right? He told us that he thought Trump was, quote, nuts, that he was, quote, crazy, uh, that he was, uh, uh, outraged in many ways by the the incompetence uh, of Trump's White House and his administration. Uh, He thought incorrectly, along with many people, that he could be constrained by a sort of axis of adults, which included initially Rex Tillerson, a friend of Baker's whom he had recommended to be Trump's first secretary of state. And yet, of course, none of that happened. And remarkably, Baker never could fully renounce uh, Trump, although he held him uh, you know, at a distance, he he made this sort of classic Baker compromise of saying, well, I, I won't endorse him. And yet he couldn't vote against him. 
And uh, I think he himself chose, he was asked by us over and over and over again, <laughs> always came up with the same answer, which is he, he chose to be regarded in the end at the age of 90, essentially, as you said, as a party man, as a partisan. Uh, uh, and that was what he opted to do. He had an easy out. The Bushes never supported Donald Trump after the way he savaged both uh, Jeb Bush and the legacy of George W. Bush, uh, President Bush, the late President Bush, the last vote he cast in his life uh, uh, after being a lifelong Republican was for Hillary Clinton. And uh, yet Bush, Bush's best friend, Jim Baker, uh, rather than simply saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm a Bush guy till the end, chose a very different course. And I think for us as biographers, uh, we realized after asking the same question over and over and over again, you have to listen ultimately to your subject. And, uh, you know, Baker, has chosen to be regarded as a Republican. He said something so interesting to Peter after one point telling us, well, he uh, could consider voting for Joe Biden. Biden, after all, is kind of his kind of guy, a, a guy who's an establishment person who is definitely open to deals across the aisle, who is fundamentally a, a pragmatist, a centrist. Uh, Baker told us he could consider voting for Biden if he got the nomination, but then quick, quickly reversed himself and he told Peter, well, listen, I'm still a Republican, even if my party has left me. And, you know, ultimately, look, his story is the story of a period of time in Washington that, that no longer exists. And it's the story of a Republican Party that doesn't really exist anymore. And I think Baker's own self-consciousness of himself almost as an anachronism, uh, you know, who's still here, is is probably the way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned that President-elect Biden is his kind of guy. I mean, Jim Baker came to Washington in 1975 um, when he went to the Commerce Department in the Ford administration. Joe Biden arrived had arrived in the Senate three years earlier. So they're both formed in that 1970s uh, political world. I just wonder what you think that we can learn from the James Baker story that might help us understand what the Biden presidency might look like? Well, I think the problem for the, us is that, that while Biden is still, uh, has, has some of the same Baker background and instincts, he's governing at a different time, right? So, I mean, could we, we're asked this question all the time. We've confronted this question ourselves in the book a little bit. Could a Baker su succeed in today's Washington the way he did back then? And we've always come to the conclusion that Baker is so talented, he probably would find a way to be successful in some fashion or another. But the things that made him uh, so uniquely consequential and impactful in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Those conditions don't exist at this point. We talked about this earlier. The zero-sum philosophy today is not the Jim Baker philosophy. It's not the Joe Biden philosophy. Joe Biden is perfectly willing to give Mitch McConnell you know, something at the bargaining table to get in order to get what he wants. Now, the question is whether Mitch McConnell is. And Mitch McConnell is now part of, if not representative of, uh, you know, a Washington that views compromise as a dirty word and that anytime you give anything away in order to get what you want, you must be sellout. But I think the problem for Biden is that he may be a Baker kind of politician, but he's governing in a in a Trump kind of era. And I don't know whether or not that that era, you know, this this, this next four years is going to be more conducive to uh, Baker and Biden style of deal making uh, or whether we're going to be stuck in this completely, you know, frozen polarization for another another term.
Yeah, I do wonder whether the election of Joe Biden does suggest a yearning for another time, though, that that world that was uh, Jim Baker's too. But I mean, it sounds to me as if you think that in some ways this is almost a last hurrah for those values rather than the, uh, a kind of return to their way of doing politics that might be more lasting. Well, look, I think one thing about this sort of time travel exercise of working on this book over the last few years was the recognition that uh, it's not just the people who have changed. Uh, the structural incentives in Washington have fundamentally changed, by the way, in ways that predated Donald Trump or potentially made his uh, rise more possible. Uh, and, you know, Congress was already breaking down and in a, a state of extreme dysfunction when we began this book back in the, you know, sort of dim mists of the Obama era, right? Uh, and I do think that it's hard to imagine that just, uh, you know, sort of wishing it to be otherwise and having a leader who, an administration that might actively seek to uh, return to the past, that doesn't necessarily mean it's possible to do so. And I think that uh, arguably many of the seeds of this new scorched earth politics were born uh, in Baker's era, the Reagan era in, in Washington, the 1980s. But, uh, you know, you, you look at some of the changes, uh, uh, for example, uh, the elimination of earmarks and the changes in Congress that have led to members of Congress uh, uh, not spending any time here, uh, a system, systematic attack on uh, the federal government itself as an ideological pillar of the Republican Party. Uh, uh, and meaning, therefore, that uh, many of those who are elected uh, feel no obligation or necessity to be good at governing since their goal is to dismantle government. Uh, you know, the fact that gerrymandering has become ever and ever more extreme, aided by technology, the fragmentation of the media, right? Uh, imagine all of those things having happened over the last three decades. And it's hard to see uh, the kind of reversal that would be required uh, across so many different uh, avenues of our public life for uh, a return to this kind of uh, politics. I, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't want to be overly skeptical because I think it's also true that we've had leaders who sought to exploit divisions. And if you had one who didn't, uh, there remains much that Americans agree upon. And, you know, I, I go back just to, you know, conclude to the beginning of this horrible pandemic back in the spring and the initial public polls, for example, they had something like 80% of Americans supporting uh, masks as a sensible public health measure uh, uh, to protect ourselves from the coronavirus. It's only once it was politicized by Trump uh, and a small minority of others around the states that uh, it became an article of partisan faith. And it went from 80% support to much more comparable to the divide that we already had between Republicans and Democrats. So there is a lot of stuff that Americans potentially do still agree upon, even with the structural impediments to getting stuff done. And you, I mean, you mentioned time traveling there. I mean, this this book really is brilliant contemporary history. And, and it seems to me that you feel that history actually makes you better at doing the, doing the job of analyzing contemporary events in exactly the way that you just did there. Well, I think that's right. Yeah. The, for us, just as reporters, it was helpful to have the context, right? Because we can sit there and say, well, Donald Trump has done this or Donald Trump has done that. But it's helpful to know what's normal and what's not. It's helpful to know what's been done before, what hasn't. And therefore, to put today's events in the right, uh, you know, in the right frame, if you know what's what's 
how things used to work in the past. So I, I thought that for us anyway, as reporters, it was super helpful to to be doing this project at the same time as we were covering these sort of norm shattering events of the last four years. So the book is The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. It's written by my guests, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, and published by Doubleday, price $35. And I have to say, it's not only the best, but also the most enjoyable biography that I've read this year. But for now, Susan, Peter, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. What a fantastic conversation. We're delighted to be with you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next time. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening.